You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Ooh, goody, ooh, goody. We get to start with one of the best and shortest short stories ever written on exactitude in science. In 1946, the incomparable Argentine Jorge Luis Borges wrote it for the Annals of Buenos Aires as, well, a sort of a prank of the sort that we're used to around these parts. Borges styles his story as a quotation taken from the travel log of Suarez Miranda, entitled Travels of Well-Behaved Young Gentlemen, circa 1658. But there was no Suarez Miranda, and there was no 1658 book entitled Travels of Well-Behaved Young Gentlemen, sad as that is to say. It's all a fiction. Borges didn't expect anyone to take him seriously, and unlike most of the stories of this type we've talked about, no one much did, but the story itself is as brief as it is brilliant. Here it is, in its entirety, as translated by Nikos Salangaros. In that empire, the art of cartography reached such perfection that the map of a single province occupied the whole of a city and the map of the empire took up an entire province. With time, those exaggerated maps no longer satisfied, and the colleges of cartographers came up with a map of the empire that had the size of the empire itself, and coincided with it point by point. Less addicted to the study of cartography, succeeding generations understood that this extended map was useless, and without compassion they abandoned it to the inclemencies of the sun and of the winters. In the deserts of the West, there remain tattered fragments of the map inhabited by animals and beggars. In the whole country, there are no other relics of the geographical disciplines. Okay, so it's not a lot of story. It doesn't have much of a direct narrative. But the more one meditates on Borez's tale, the more dividends it pays. Generations of stories take place in that brief little paragraph as the empire in question lurches ever forward towards ridiculousness. Driven by competition and obsession, the Empire built maps larger and larger until they came up with one so exact that it was also, in effect, useless. And with that, they abandoned the whole enterprise. In Lewis Carroll's last novel, Sylvie and Bruno Concluded, he tells a similar story. What a useful thing a pocket map is, I remarked. That's another thing we've learned from your nation, said Meinherr, map making. But we've carried it much further than you. What do you consider the largest map that would be useful? About six inches to the mile? 
Only six inches, exclaimed mine hair. We very soon got to six yards to the mile. Then we tried a hundred yards to the mile. And then came the grandest idea of all. We actually made a map of the country on the scale of a mile to the mile. Have you used it much? I inquired. It has never been spread out yet, said mine hair. The farmers objected. They said it would cover the whole country and shut out the light. So now we use the country itself as its own map. And I assure you it does nearly as well. Both Borez and Carol took on the very literal interpretation of a paper written by the Polish-American semiotician Alfred Korzybski. Borges probably knowingly, Carol definitely not, since Korzybski's paper was presented in 1931, 33 years after Carol's death. Korzybski's paper was entitled A Non-Aristotelian System, ooh, I like it already, Al, and its necessity for rigor in mathematics and physics. In the section relevant to our train of thought, Korzybski asks us to embark upon a bit of a thought experiment. If we consider an actual territory, say Paris, Dresden, Warsaw, and build up a map in which the order of these cities would be represented as Dresden, Paris, Warsaw, to travel by such a map would be misguiding, wasteful of effort. In case of emergencies, it might be seriously harmful. We could say that such a map was not true or that the map had a structure not similar to the territory. We should notice that a. A map may have a structure similar or dissimilar to the structure of the territory. b. Two similar structures have similar logical characteristics. Thus, if in a correct map Dresden is given as between Paris and Warsaw, a similar relation is found in the actual territory. c. A map is not the territory. Later on, he gets down to the point. A map is not the territory it represents, but, if correct, it has a similar structure to the territory, which accounts for its usefulness. Or, as the British statistician George E.P. Box put it, all models are wrong, but some models are useful. Now, to Korzybski, map and territory are mainly allegories. He urges us to think about language as a sort of map of the territory of its expression. If the figurative map is wrong, it can lead us figuratively astray, and we can miss our figurative destination. But, as Boras and Carroll show, there's no need for the simile. Maps and territories themselves literally contain the literal perils that the metaphor is meant to expose. And while Borez and Carroll dreamt up fictional maps which were too perfect to be good, the actual history of cartography is chock-a-block with examples of bad maps that led to some truly wrong territories. Today, we're going to talk about a few of them. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Map and Territory. A caveat up front. This is, by no means, meant to be a complete history of map errors because, well, there, there have been thousands of those. In 1875, the newly appointed hydrographer to the Royal British Navy, Sir Frederick Evans, a respected sailor and an expert in magnets, compasses, and how to keep the former from screwing up the latter, 
took a red pen to the Admiralty's official chart of the Pacific and X'd out 123 islands, which he had determined to be non-existent. Granted, three of the ones he deleted turned out to be real after all and had to be added back again, and a further 22 islands that he had left in place eventually also turned out to be fakes, but Evans Island Map Massacre still gives us a little bit of the scale of the problem. There are several more reasons besides impracticality why this won't be anything like a complete survey. For one, we've already covered a hearty handful of map errors over the last hundred episodes. We've talked several times about Olus Magnus, who's responsible for probably the most famous of fanciful atlases, the Carta Marina, as well as his book Histories of the Northern Peoples. Together, those two works solidified European belief in an almost uncountable number of myths, mysterious savage peoples, undiscoverable islands, and especially, a whole lot of sea monsters. So he features prominently in Here Be Dragons, another early episode where the sound quality and mispronunciations hold court. We've talked several times about the bad ideas that dominated maps of the Arctic for most of human history, be they the giant Iron Mountain, which Mercator believed caused compasses to point north, the open polar sea, the secret land of Hyperborea, the Northwest Passage, the hole that leads inside the hollow earth, etc., etc. As memory serves, we go into the most detail about these ideas during the Fool Killer series, as well as the two-parter The Cold Hard Truth, which tells the story of two of the most disastrous phantom islands, Crockerland and Bradleyland. The Poles have traditionally been home to more than their fair share of these, owing mainly to sailors mistaking icebergs for islands, and to the freaky superior mirage known as the Fata Morgana, which has a tendency to project convincing-looking forms on the horizon over cold waters. Neither of these explanations pertain to Crocker or Bradleyland, though, but if you want to know the truth about them... Man, you'll have to go back and listen. What else? What else? Uh, there's Martin Frobisher, who featured in the cold open of our 50th episode, the Golden episode. He was convinced he'd landed on a gigantic island in Canada that was full up with gold and ruined his reputation trying to extract it, only to realize too late that it wasn't gold, but pyrite. On his way to that disaster, he also noted several islands and mountains that turned out to be as fake as his fool's gold, but they nevertheless were accepted as real for decades, and in some cases centuries, long after his financial backer had died in debtor's prison. Oh, and then there's Graham Island, otherwise known as Hotham Island, otherwise known as Ferdinandia Island, otherwise known as Julia Island, otherwise, when you get the picture, Graham Island really did exist, just... Not for very long, we devoted the episode People This Isle to its story, another early one. Anyway, you get the point. There are also a bunch of really great map error stories that are just too big to tell here, or that I'm otherwise keeping in my back pocket for later. The Lost Continent of Atlantis, obviously, as well as the other lost continents of Lemuria and Mu, not to mention the found continent of Australia, which, well, Australians... You know all the weirdness that surrounded the discovery of your continent, but most of the rest of us don't. We'll get back to it eventually, I promise. Finally, in case that wasn't enough already, there's one last problem getting in the way of telling a complete history of bad cartography. The narratives. While each story of forbidden lands and mysterious whispers of far-off places is individually fascinating, as a collective, they start to gel together. Somebody thought they saw this place or wrote about that place, and for the next few generations, everyone assumed it was there, and then somebody went to check and discovered it wasn't. Ta-da. The how and why and who is always delicious, but the shape generally becomes a little repetitive. 
So we're not really talking about the biggest or the best or the most notable or even necessarily the most interesting map errors. Instead, what I have for you after an unconscionable amount of waffling is some number of arbitrarily decided favorite stories of mine. So, holy crap, let's get on with it already. With your foot on the air and your head on the ground. Let's start somewhere simple and familiar. Our old pal, Pliny the Elder. In his first century book, Natural History, Pliny told the story of Aeneas Plocamus, a tax collector for the Roman Emperor Claudius. According to Pliny, Aeneas was sailing around the Arabian Peninsula when he was blown off course by a monsoon. Eventually, he landed in and befriended the monarch of an island Pliny calls Taprobana. In six months, Aeneas had more or less picked up the language of the king and much impressed him, both with his honesty and a whole bunch of cash. Therefore, the king sent a delegation to Rome and trade between the two nations began. The only problem here is that there is no such island as Taprobana, which led to a couple thousand years of confusion. Taprobana appeared on maps and in stories clear into the 1940s, which I will circle back to in a minute, but from fairly early on, it was seen as a question mark. Was it Sri Lanka and the kingdom in question Sinhala? Or was it Sumatra? Or else was it some other island, real or otherwise? Was there anything to this story at all? Or did Pliny just make it up or reprint a total fabrication as he was pretty frequently known to do? The evidence suggests that Aeneas Plocamus was a real person, at least since he left behind a couple pieces of graffiti along the spice route around the time in question, and let that be a lesson to you kids, always leave graffiti. Most of the facts suggest that Aeneas's or Pliny's Taprobana was in fact Sri Lanka, or most people closer to Pliny and his writings presumed it was, at least. But there is one big standout contradiction in his description. In addition to the kingdom Aeneas is supposed to have befriended, Pliny also notes that the island was peopled with, quote, another race of men who are known as monocoli, who have only one leg, but are able to leap with surprising agility. The same people are also called Sciopidae, because they are in the habit of lying on their backs during times of extreme heat and protect themselves from the sun by the shade of their feet. These Sciopidae, or shadow feet, also make their ways onto maps for the next 1,300 years or so, although their location varies. Sometimes they are placed on Taprobana, others on mainland India. Most frequently, they're tied to Ethiopia, but the locations of the Sciopidae on most maps throughout medieval times aren't especially important because most of the maps they appear on are Mapamundi, Christian world maps that were created less to navigate by than to edify with. These often quite large maps were displayed in churches to teach about the glory and breadth of creation. Many times the shape of the world and the lands on it were shown as perfectly circular or ovular without any jutting peninsulas or jagged coasts to portray the perfection of God's work. They included locations from the Bible, usually the center of the world was cast as Jerusalem, pictures of biblical events, and plenty of strange foreign animals and plants, like the little men shading themselves with their singular giant feet. 
Not only were these images good for catching the eye, but they also, so the thinking seems to have gone, inspired awe at the grandeur of God's handiwork. By the late 14th century, both the Mapamundi and the Schiapidae seemed to have gone out of style, and their homeland of Taprabana was mostly replaced with Sri Lanka, aside from in philosophical writings and fictions. It's mentioned, for instance, in The Lottery in Babylon, another of my favorite short stories, also written by Jorge Luis Borges. Symmetry! Let's move on. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. An island of her own. Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa began exploring in 1555, when he was 23 years old. Most probably born in Gauasia, he joined the Royal Navy when he was 18 before leaving for Mexico, then called New Spain. He hung out in New Spain until the Inquisition became too much to handle, whereupon he sailed off for Lima, where the Inquisition continued to hound him. Gamboa's mother was Basque, which the Inquisition figured meant he was a secret witch, and maybe a secret Jew, and he was said to possess a number of magic items. Fun times, that Spanish Inquisition. Sarmiento had become interested in the Inca. He went on to write the best surviving book on them, and particularly was intrigued by stories that Inca warriors had taken riches from lands still to the west of Peru. He made a proposal to the governor, Lope Garcia de Castro, that he be supplied to go looking for this western land of riches. As it happened, Castro and his chief navigator, Alvaro de Mandana de Niera, were already contemplating a trip west hoping to find a gigantic, still-undiscovered continent that they believed must exist in the Southern Hemisphere because fucking Aristotle had said it had to be there to counteract the weight of Europe, which was called Terra Australis. And oh, no, I said we're saving that one for another time. Anyway, together, Sarmiento and Mandano discovered the Solomon Islands in a somewhat disastrous expedition. By the time they touched ground, they were short on supplies and established contact with the islanders in hopes of getting food and water. But the islanders, too, were short on goods and only offered the Spanish the flesh of a young man's arm, which they quite understandably declined. After landing on several other islands without any better luck, they began heading back, but Mendano was concerned that Sarmiento would get credit for finding the Solomons, and abandoned him in Mexico after throwing Sarmiento's logbooks and maps overboard. When he proved this all at trial, Sarmiento's reputation went from secret witch to esteemed sailor and navigator. In 1578, he was named an admiral and given command of the Pacific against Francis Drake, who was then raiding Spanish ports all down Central and South America under the flimsy guise of a voyage of discovery. It's safe to say that Sarmiento had more luck in exploring than in fighting. He wasn't able to catch up with Drake, but in his attempts to, he managed to create the most detailed and accurate maps yet crafted of the Strait of Magellan, which he then took back to Spain in 1580. 
King Philip was impressed and sent Sarmiento back with orders to fortify the strait for Spain. Sarmiento then built a fort and colony on the north shore of the strait, which promptly and disastrously failed as soon as he left it, becoming what Thomas Cavendish called Port Famine, which we talked about in the episode Deserted. The downward slide continued from there. On his way back to Spain from the soon-to-be-named Port Famine in 1584, Sarmiento was captured by Sir Walter Raleigh and taken to England. There, Queen Elizabeth I gave him a letter of peace to deliver to King Philip and sent him off with it. But on his way to deliver it, he was attacked by French Huguenots and again imprisoned. He wasn't released until 1588, which was too late for his letter to be delivered before the Spanish Armada made for Great Britain with the goal of dethroning Elizabeth and re-establishing Catholicism in England, which was a humiliatingly disastrous failure. In turn, the English organized their own armada intent on dethroning Philip, which also failed. Between the two, something like 40,000 sailors died, all because Sarmiento wasn't able to deliver a letter. But that is not why we're talking about him. We're talking about him because of Painter's Wife's Island. When Raleigh captured Sarmiento, he also captured a great number of important documents about the Strait of Magellan, and even more valuable, maps of it. Raleigh quickly began poring over them and discovered an island that looked like it would be of great strategic advantage for controlling the strait. He took the map to Sarmiento in chains and, quote, When I asked him, being then my prisoner, some question about an island in those straits, which methought might have done either benefit or displeasure to his enterprise, he told me merrily that it was to be called the Painter's Wife's Island saying that whilst the fellow drew that map, his wife, sitting by, desired him to put in one country for her, that she, in imagination, might have an island of her own. Your superstar employee left to start their own company. You're happy for them, but right now, you need help. You need Indeed. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all your hiring in one place, even interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed's Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. It helps you make a short list of great candidates fast. The moment you sponsor a job, you can get a list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description. Then you can invite them to apply right then. Indeed helps you hire great people fast. Plus, Indeed makes finding quality candidates even faster with 135 assessments to help make sure you find applicants with the right skills. Best of all, you only pay for applicants who meet your must-have qualifications. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your post at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. 
If you've always said you wanted to read more, this summer is yours for the taking. Empower your inner reader with Literati Book Clubs, where the world's most inspiring people share the books that most inspired them. I'm on my good personal friend Susan Orlean's Literati Book Club. We drink together on Twitter. She just doesn't know it. And so far, she's managed not just to recommend great books I'd never heard of before, but also encouraged me to finally check out ones I've been meaning to. Whether you're enjoying beach reads with Ellen Hildebrand or exploring mythic realms with Joseph Campbell scholars, you'll find their brilliant insights on the Literati app. They host exclusive interviews with the authors themselves, where you can ask your biggest questions and get the insider answers you won't find in any other book club. All book club members can shop the entire Literati library at discounts that are so deep they look like cliffhangers, eh? with many books over 50% off. Reimagine what a book club can be. Redeem your 30-day trial for only 99 cents at literati.com slash the constant. Head to literati.com slash the constant to learn more and read more with Literati. L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I dot com slash the constant. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Blessings and Curses In 1291, the brothers Vandino and Ogolino Vivaldi left Genoa on board two galleys which they planned to sail to India. It was one of the first times that Europeans set out to the Atlantic via the Mediterranean since the fall of the Roman Empire. After passing the Moroccan coast, just barely out to open sea, they disappeared, never to be heard from again. The vanishing of the Vivaldi brothers became a famous mystery throughout medieval Europe, and kind of remains one even to this day. In around 1385, a book entitled Libro de Conocimiento de Todos los Reinos, or The Book of Knowledge of All Kingdoms, appeared in Spain. It was written, or rather, supposedly written, by a Castilian friar about his travels, or rather, his supposed travels, throughout the world. In it, the anonymous friar claims that he found the ultimate fate of one of the two galleys in the city of Graciona, where the Genoese sailors were supposedly brought after their ship wrecked in Amanuan. 
the problems with this explanation are twofold, since neither of those places exists outside of the Book of Knowledge of All Kingdoms, and the author names them as part of the kingdom of Prester John, who also didn't exist. A very, very long story short, but Prester John was thought to be a descendant of one of the three Magi and thought to rule over a gigantic and powerful hidden Christian kingdom, either in India or sub-Saharan Africa. After 70 or so years of catastrophic crusades undertaken by the Catholics, a very much forged letter from this very much fictional Prester John began circulating through Europe claiming that he would bring the riches and resources of his kingdom to bear against the enemies of the church and join the Byzantine Empire and the Pope in taking back the Holy Land. This, again, entirely bullshit promise became very popular with Europeans for a very long time, and needless to say, the kingdom of Prester John became yet another erroneous map entry for centuries to come. Anyway, whatever it was that actually happened to the Vivaldi brothers, lots of folks some of whom were even real people, unlike our anonymous traveling Castilian friar, went looking for them over the years, including Lancelotto Malicello. Well, probably, at least. Lancelotto was a sailor and a Genoan too, and he sailed off around 20 years after the brothers went missing. His mission, in all likelihood, was to find them. Instead, he found something else, the Canary Islands. He landed on the island which now bears his name, Lanzarote, in 1312 and stayed there for two decades until the native Guanche revolted against his colony and drove him off. This is one of the most important events in the history of bad mapping. Both Pliny the Elder and Plutarch had talked about the Canary Islands, but no European since the fall of the empire had been able to locate them. By the time Lancelotto landed in 1312, most assumed that they were made up, but they weren't they were real. And that meant, possibly, that all the other places that they talked about were real too. Like Taprabana, for instance, with its mono-footed sunbathers. But even more spectacular were another set of islands, just like the Canaries, that both Pliny and Plutarch had described, just like the Canaries. And if they were real, they would be the most remarkable discovery imaginable. The Fortunate Isles. In his biography of Roman general Quintus Sertorius, Plutarch describes the Fortunate Isles as just a few days west from the Iberian Peninsula. On the Fortunate Isles, the weather was always fair, and the rain fell in a fine, harmless dew, which nurtured fruit without famine or labor. They were, in short, a paradise. The Elysian Fields. Now, Tracking the evolution of a fictional place is a sticky wicket, and a lot of what follows is pretty much conjecture, if conjecture supported by some solid logic and strong corollary documentation. But there were also a whole lot of other Phantom Island traditions going around among the Norse and Arab worlds, which probably got twisted into this. So here is the extremely reductive version. The Fortunate Isles, or Islands of the Blessed, seem like they laid much of the groundwork for a number of Christian paradisic islands, including an Irish version called High Brazil, a Welsh version called, oh god, I'm trying to pronounce Welsh now, a Welsh version called Anwen, could be, and most wonderfully, a Portuguese version called Antaia, or the Island of Seven Cities. 
Antaea showed up on lots of maps throughout the 15th century exactly where Plutarch plopped the Fortunate Isles. But its story was quite different. The legend of Antaea, or the most prominent version of the legend of Antaea, goes like this. When the Muslim Umayyad Caliphate kicked the Visigoths out of the Iberian Peninsula around 714 AD, seven Christian bishops fled with their congregations by ship westward through the Atlantic. Upon landing on a large, temperate, and fertile island, they burnt their boats and set down seven cities, one for each bishop. Life on Antaea was said to be perfect. Not only was there plenty of food and perfect moral lives, but a whole bunch of riches to share as well. Naturally, anyone with a ship to sail and Christian fellowship in their breast, or else a desire for gold, was interested in finding Antaea, but nobody managed to pull it off, including Christopher Columbus, who thought it would be a good place to stop off for supplies before continuing his westward journey to the Indies. Columbus's son, Hernando Colon, was also intrigued by Antaea, and he wrote that during the early 1400s, a Portuguese ship was blown off course and landed at Antaea, where they met the locals and attended mass. Then they returned to Portugal to tell everyone what they'd found, and when they attempted to go back to Antaea, the whole crew vanished and was never heard from again. A Flemish sailor by the name of Ustachi de la Fossi lent some explanation for why neither Columbus, his son, nor anyone else had been able to locate the island of the Seven Cities. He wrote that the archbishop of the island had cast a necromantic spell over it, making it so no one could reach it again until, quote, all Spain should be restored to our good Catholic faith. But by the mid-16th century, Atlantic travel was too common, and the Western Hemisphere was coming into view. The island of Antilla began dropping off of maps with an understanding, probably also wrong, that those who had seen it had accidentally sailed to the New World and encountered an archipelago which we now call the Antilles. That's not the end, though. Because it should go without saying that you couldn't have a Christian island paradise without also having a Christian island perdition. So, to the north of Antia had to be the island of Satanazes. Like the devil for whom it was named, Satanazes is shrouded in darkness. Not literal darkness. Well, maybe literal darkness. Who knows? because there isn't much we can confidently say about the Island of Devils, also known as the Isle of the Hand of Satan. If Satanazes actually referred to the Hand of Satan, then it might have been meant more or less literally. Stories of a giant hand reaching out from the sea and crushing boats existed in India, Venice, Ireland, and more, well before Satanazes started dotting maps and long after, too. Alternatively, Satanazes might have been home to actual evil devils that would attack anyone stupid enough to land there. It's also possible that the devils in question were hostile native islanders who the Norse called Skraelings. One way or the other, when Antia got blown off maps of the Portuguese coast, so too did Satanazes. Where it went, however, is a more difficult question. Perhaps Satanazes just sank from memory. But there is another possibility. In 1508, the explorer and cartographer Johan Reusch placed a new island on his map of Newfoundland, the Isle of Demons. It seems as likely as not that Reusch was relocating the Isle of Devils away from Iberia, where there were many ships to discount its existence, to Canada, 
where there were still very few European sailors and plenty of places for Satan to hide away his evil doings. When the French Franciscan priest André Thevet published The New Found World, he included the first European descriptions of pineapples, peanuts, sloths, and macaws. In his follow-up, Universal Cosmography, he included the tale of what he expressed as his personal experience of the Isle of Demons. Thevet describes the Isle of Demons as teeming with its eponymous monsters. From the shore, one could hear, quote, a great clamor of men's voices, confused and inarticulate. Thevet had only survived, he wrote, by repeating the Gospel of John over and over again from memory, which kept the beasts barely at bay. This is going to come as a bit of a shock, so make sure you're sitting down for this next part. André Thevet was lying. In truth, he fell ill early on his American voyage and set back for France just ten weeks after landing in Brazil. The actual Brazil, not the Irish mythical Brazil. He appears to have stolen from the writings and testimonies of other explorers, as well as indigenous peoples, and put them into a florid, self-aggrandizing, almost entirely invented version. He was sued for as much by a rival scholar whom he ripped off. But that scholar hadn't visited the Island of Demons. No, André Thevet had gotten that part from someone else. Ooh, are you ready for this? Do all you Canadians already know this one? Well, pipe down, eh? All right, here's the bare-bones, least spectacular version, which is still, I think you'll find, pretty damn spectacular. Marguerite de la Roque was a French noblewoman about whom very little can confidently be said. Records show she was placed in control of lands in southern France in 1536. She had a relative by the name of Jean-Francois de la Roque de Roberval, who might have been her brother or her uncle, or maybe even her cousin, whatever he was to her, to everyone else, he was a schemer. He ingratiated himself with Francis I by leveraging his own property in the South to win the king's esteem and live the high life. But then, in debt to a variety of his family members, not Marguerite, he took up piracy against the British. But that didn't do the trick either, so he appealed to Francis to give him a charter to resettle and colonize New France which is to say Quebec and Newfoundland. Francis thought it was a great idea. He named Roberville Lieutenant General in the country of Canada, charged him with spreading the Holy Catholic faith, awkward since Roberville was secretly a Huguenot, which will be important to remember twice more in this tale, and gave him ships, a large sum of money, and a whole bunch of prison labor to start a new French-Canadian colony. After selling some more property and borrowing some more money, Rebervel set sail with three ships, the Valentine, the Anne, and the Lechefray. For some reason, Marguerite came with. On the journey, she took up with a man aboard the Valentine and became pregnant. I mean, probably. It's really hard to tell this story, especially when I'm trying to hold back the twist at the end. Probably she took up with a man aboard the Valentine and probably she became pregnant. And probably Rubbervale was affronted by this due to his Huguenot morality. That's one. When they came to an island on the mouth of the St. Paul River in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, he exacted his punishment. The sequence of events here, too, is unclear. Either Rubbervale cast the man onto the island and Marguerite chose to go with him, or he cast Marguerite onto the island and the man chose to go with her. 
Either way, Marguerite was followed by Damien, her maidservant. Rubavel weighed anchor, and the Valentine sailed off, leaving the three alone to die on... You know where, so say it dramatically with me. The Isle of Demons. How'd that go? You wanted to give it another try? Let's do it. Three, two, one. The Isle of Demons. Neither Damien nor Marguerite's lover made it very long, and neither did her baby, whom she gave birth to in the spring. Perhaps they were killed by demons, which might have been bears, but Marguerite survived and thrived alone on the island. For two and a half years, she hunted and forged with a cave for shelter, a knife, a gun, and a ragged Bible from which, let's say for the hell of it, she read the Gospel of John to keep the beasts at bay. When she was discovered in 1544 by a ship full of Basque fishermen, she was wrapped in the skin of a bear that she had killed. She returned to France, where she, theoretically, started a girls' school, perhaps in Perigord, where, according to André Thevet, she told him her story, leading him to his visit, which absolutely did not take place, of the Isle of Demons. So, obviously, none of this ever happened, right? Why should we believe André Thevet on the Marguerite story when we know he lied about everything else? Okay, well... Here's the thing. Jean-Francois de la Roque de Rabavel established a colony called France Roy and constructed a fort, or else just took control of a fort built earlier by Jacques Cartier. He explored the St. Lawrence, looking for jewels and precious metals, but finding neither. And then the colony began to fall apart. Sickness and famine spread throughout the settlement, and Rabavel denied food and water to anyone unable to work. He doled out harsh punishments for even minor offenses. Petty theft was met with flogging or even hanging. After a few months, France Roy collapsed entirely, and those who were not diseased, starved, or hung returned to France aboard a rescue fleet sent by King Francis. Rabavol was found at fault for the failure of the colony, and his holdings were mortgaged. He probably took control of Marguerite's properties, which might have been the plan all along, and by some means managed to secure some mining rights, but neither saved him from ruin. In 1560, he attended a secret Huguenot meeting, which, it turned out, was not as secret as supposed. When he left, he was descended upon by a mob of angry Catholics and torn apart in the middle of Paris. That's two. But before that, he met with Queen Margaret of Navarre, King Francis's sister, and told her the story of what had happened to Marguerite de la Roque. Margaret then wrote up that tale in a book of short stories entitled Heptameron. By and large, the two accounts, from Marguerite to the vet and Rabavel to Queen Margaret, match up. And so does a third version of the story from Francois de Belfort, otherwise known as the scholar from whom Thevet plagiarized. Together, the three accounts are enough to conclude firmly that Marguerite de la Roque was indeed abandoned at, lived upon, and was rescued from the Isle of Demons. Except for that one niggling detail that the Isle of Demons doesn't exist. Okay, okay, it's not that mysterious. 
She was probably set ashore at Quipan Island or maybe Harrington Harbor, where Margaret's Cave is a local tourist attraction, but that's not nearly so spooky. How far along are we? Oh man, I got I got too many more map stories. Alright, I said this wouldn't be comprehensive, but I still want so many more. How about this? Let's do one last little story as a tease to a much bigger story, and we'll do that one next episode. And then maybe we'll come back and do some more map stories after that. Does that sound fair? I can't actually hear you. I'm recording this well in advance of your response. So, here goes. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Angles and Demonstratives Perhaps you've never noticed, but the United States has a dorsal fin. Take a look. Starting in Washington, the border between Canada and the states is set along the 49th parallel until you come to Minnesota, where, there it is, a little hat jutting up into Manitoba. It's called the Northwest Angle, and its story is just a weird piece of an even weirder one. It was 1783, and the American War of Independence was coming to a surprising end. The ragtag colonists actually won somehow, and by somehow, I mean because of France. So, France seemed like the perfect place to broker peace and set up the boundaries of this new nation for the 10 or 15 years it was quite reasonably expected to exist. This task, naturally, required a map. As it happens, there were two. The British brought a version that ceded land to the colonists way further north, they were prepared to give up their lands above the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes, which would have made Montreal, Ottawa, Windsor, and even Toronto American cities. But when David Hartley and Richard Oswald, Great Britain's representatives at the treaty, saw that their American counterparts, Ben Franklin, John Jay, Henry Lorenz, and John Adams, were expecting to get far less, they quickly hid their map away, and its existence was embargoed for more than a century afterwards. Instead, England agreed that the western boundary of the United States would be the Mississippi River. The northern boundary, for most of the established land, would be the St. Lawrence Seaway, which tracked well enough until you got to the northwest shores of Lake Superior. That's where things got complicated. For most of the way, the two sides were able to agree upon a series of lakes and rivers as the international boundary, which we now call the Boundary Waters. Nobody knows why. But the Boundary Waters end at the Lake of the Woods, a large, round lake directly east of the headwaters of the Mississippi at Lake Itasca. So, the two sides agreed 
that at the end of the Boundary Waters, the border would go from the northwest tip of the Lake of the Woods directly west to the Mississippi. Ta-da! A cord broker. Except for two little problems. One, Lake of the Woods wasn't actually round at all, and two, it wasn't directly east of the Mississippi. Or east of the Mississippi at all, actually. In fact, Lake of the Woods is about 100 miles north of the beginning of the Mississippi. Almost due north, actually. None of the signers of the 1783 Treaty of Paris knew this, though, because it wasn't what their map said. The map the colonists brought to the table was the same one the royalists had hid away because it was widely considered the best map ever made of North America, which was true, I suppose, but as the perfect can be the enemy of the good, so too can the best be the enemy of the accurate. The map in question is called the Mitchell Map, and it was published in 1755 and drawn by one John Carpenter. Oh, sorry, Mitchell. So far, so good. But the thing about John Mitchell was that he had little experience with either cartography or, well, North America, outside of Virginia, where he was born and raised. He'd left Virginia to study medicine at Edinburgh University and then returned to Lancaster County, Virginia to practice as a doctor and study botany. His wife had taken ill in 1746 and he had left Virginia this time for London. He never went back. For some reason, and it is really hard to say why, this doctor slash botanist slash racial theorist, oh yeah, you heard me, but we're not even gonna. This doctor slash botanist who spent most of his life in Britain and almost none of it in North America outside of Virginia became the go-to guy for American map making. The most likely chain of events was, to put it very simply, that George Montague Dunk, the second Earl of Halifax, was worried that the French were going to invade the British colonies and wanted to alert the crown to a coming war. He hired Mitchell to draw a map indicating the danger because, and this is conjecture too, but solid conjecture, Mitchell was the closest thing George had to an expert, simply because he was from Virginia. To make his big map, Mitchell compiled all the little maps he could get his hands on, some public, some private, some from London, some from colonial governors, some new, some extremely not so. And in the end, as I said, he created the best map ever made of North America. But it, let's say, had some issues. For instance, Lake of the Woods was drawn as a nearly perfect oval. In truth, it is decidedly irregular, which wouldn't be a big deal, provided the international border of two war-weary nations didn't depend on finding its northwest corner, a thing that pretty much doesn't exist. It might not matter that the lake is actually north of the start of the Mississippi River either, except that that selfsame international border demanded a line be drawn straight west from one to the other. In 1818, the UK and US signed another treaty establishing the 49th parallel as the boundary for most of Canada and America. By then, people had figured out that the Mississippi was below the Lake of the Woods, but the Americans weren't keen on giving up any of the territory they'd already agreed upon, even though nobody knew what that territory was exactly. So, in the new treaty, the two nations agreed that American territory would extend straight up to the northwest corner of the Lake of the Woods, instead of straight west. 
But wait, there's more. That was all fine and good, in theory, until 1824, when a survey team came to the Lake of the Woods looking for this fabled northwest corner and realized it didn't really have one. The surveyor and fur trader, David Thompson, tried his best to nail down a single location, but in the end, he just gave up and sent them four. The next year, the British sent a German astronomer and mathematician named Johann Ludwig Tjarks to finally set things straight, which he did, sort of. Tark's line became the official border that exists today, but in deciding the most northwest point of the lake, he incidentally put 596 miles of Canadian land in American hands. Today, Angle Township, Oak Island, and Elm Point are some of the only practical exclaves in the lower continental United States. To reach them, Americans must either pass over water or through Canada. It's one of the weirder pieces of North American geographical history, an inordinate number of which trace back to John Mitchell. The 1755 Mitchell map was made to alert Britain to the threat of war with France. But, most fascinatingly, it was also responsible for starting a different war 80 years later. The only war of territory ever fought between two U.S. states. And that is what we will talk about next time. Music for this episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Lee Rosevere. Title cards by Heather Chrysler. A special thanks go out to all our patrons, especially Abby Zavos, Will Kiltick, and Turtley. If you'd like to help support the creation of this show and get access to our secret feed where I drop bonus episodes like the live eulogy I performed for Donald Rumsfeld at the Paper Machete last week, which I will be dropping just as soon as the audio comes my way, go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. But there are plenty of other ways to help keep The Constant going. Check out our website, constantpodcast.com, where you can find our merch store and buy a fucking Aristotle t-shirt or something more appropriate to general audiences if you're Chicken McFly. Follow us on social media, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, or just tell a friend. Word of mouth is the primary way folks find us. And if someone told you about this show and you enjoy it, buy them a cup of coffee or something as thanks, and then pass on the good word. We're a part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Subtitle, a podcast about languages and the people who speak them. On the latest episode, hosts Patrick Cox and Kavita Pillay celebrate the return of the script's national spelling bee by holding a little spelling bee of their own and interview author David Woolman about the history of English spelling and the many attempts to reform it. Check it out at subtitlepod.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where instead of fixing the map, we just burnt the entire place down and started over again. This has been The Constant. <laughs>